All right. Well, if you remember, our focus um, during the Christmas season or the Advent season, as we call it in the church, um, this year is the exaltation of Christ. And so we are celebrating Jesus. We are lifting him up. And this morning, we're going to begin by reading the story of the ascension when Jesus was literally lifted up after the resurrection. This is uh, from Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. It says this. So when they had come together, this is the disciples, they asked him, Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And that is our Opening text for today. So according to Luke, Jesus visibly rose up into the air like a superhero and then disappeared behind a cloud while the disciples were watching. And I just want you to think about what it must have been like to see this. Okay, so the physical body of Jesus somehow left the earth and went to heaven and is currently in heaven. Um, that's what the Bible teaches. And so this was a visible picture of everything that we talked about last Sunday. That Jesus was literally high and lifted up. And this is significant for at least three reasons. The first reason is that this was a dramatic end to the earthly ministry of Jesus. If there was any doubt that Jesus was the promised Messiah that the Jews were waiting for, the ascension should have erased those doubts. Okay? And some may have some people may have questioned if they didn't witness it, whether or not the, the miracle of the resurrection actually happened. There may have been some questions about, you know, is that really Jesus or, or whatever. But there was absolutely no way to explain a man rising into the air and disappearing, right? This was 2,000 years before CGI was invented. Um, there was no possible way to make that happen. And no one on earth had ever seen anything like this. And so it was a very dramatic ending to the ministry of Jesus on earth. Second, it settled the issue of what Jesus had come to do. He did not come to establish a physical earthly kingdom. 
which is what everyone was expecting the Messiah to do. The disciples were absolutely crushed and disheartened when Jesus was arrested and crucified. They were not expecting that, even though Jesus had explicitly told them many times that that's what they should be expecting. They still weren't because they thought he's going to take the throne. He's going to kick out the Romans. He's going to lead a revolution. And so everyone assumed when Jesus died that he was a failure. He must not be the promised Messiah. Of course, then he rose from the dead and revealed himself to the disciples and appeared to them alive. And so all of that has happened now in the days leading up to this moment. And naturally, because he's now alive again, and obviously it seems like he can't die, right? He's not going to stay dead. So now the disciples are assuming, okay, Jesus, now you're going to start the kingdom that we all thought you were going to see. We knew. That's what you came to do, right? And Jesus is like, no. <laughs> not exactly. Right? He says in verse 7, this, it's still not time for that. In some cryptic way, he basically just kind of blows that question off. And then Jesus physically left the earth. Now, how confusing must that have been? Because what Jesus is saying to them in that moment with a miracle is it's clearly not his mission to restore Israel in the way that they expected. Instead, if they were paying attention, what had Jesus come to do? What did Jesus himself say he had come to do? To seek and to save the lost. To make disciples. And what were his parting instructions to the disciples? What does he say he wants them to do? He says, I want you to go and be my witnesses in all the world. Empowered not by my physical presence with you, but by Holy Spirit. That's what he says, right? So that's the second thing. It kind of clarifies what Jesus came to do and what he wants for his disciples. And then finally, it's important to know that Jesus was not leaving their disciples on their own. In fact, he wasn't actually leaving them at all. Jesus is present with us right now. Not his physical body, obviously, but his spiritual presence, his very real presence is with us right now. And Jesus had been telling his disciples for a long time that he was going to leave them to go to the Father, but that it was a good thing and not a bad thing that he did so. Why would it be a good thing for Jesus to leave physically, to leave the earth and return to heaven? This is actually a really important concept in the Bible. And so we need to think about that. And that's what we're going to do this morning. So to answer that question, we actually need to look elsewhere because Jesus doesn't really answer the question in Acts chapter 1. But we're going to go to Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 4. 
Okay, so Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 4, it says this. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Okay, so... If you remember how the book of Ephesians, what Paul is doing there, he is encouraging the churches to stay united, for Christians to stay united, to be at peace with one another, right? Because we share the same God, the same faith, the same spirit. And then he says this, verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's Gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Okay, that quote comes from Psalm 68. And what Paul is doing is he is linking that phrase from Psalm 68, that sentence, explicitly to Jesus. He says, talking about Jesus. And so Jesus is the king who is leading captives and giving gifts. But if you look carefully at Psalm 68, what you'll find is that Paul actually took a small liberty with the text. He changes something. Now, of course, we believe in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so it's not actually Paul doing it. He's doing something that God has ordained that he do. For a purpose, but I want you to see this, okay? So we're going to look at side by side um, the actual verse at the top and the verse as Paul quotes it on the bottom, okay? So Psalm 68 says, You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men. Paul says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Do you see the difference? There's a few things there. Paul's obviously paraphrasing, but <clears throat> the, the key difference is instead of receiving gifts from men, Paul changes it to giving gifts to men. What's he saying? Well, to really understand this, it helps to know something about the historical context. When an ancient king won a battle, so if they go out and fight another region and they win the battle, that ancient king would come home with two things, captives and spoils. Okay, Captives were... Enemy soldiers that had surrendered, that had been captured. And sometimes those captives were enslaved by the new king. So he would take them home and he would put them to work. Right? You can keep your life, but now you work for me. Okay? Uh, sometimes what he would do is he would take those captives and trade them back for something else. And that still happens in modern times, right? So... You know, Ukrainian and Russian soldiers get captured and then they trade back to each other, something like that. 
Okay, so that's the kind of thing that was happening with the captives. Spoils were just valuables that were, you know, gained by conquering your enemy, right? So if I beat you in battle, I get to take your gold and your food and your livestock, whatever I want, basically, because what are you going to do about it? And so that's what's happening here is he's saying, you're leading a host of captives, you've received gifts, you've, you've won a great battle. And now you're celebrating victory with all the great stuff that you've gotten from this battle. And here's the thing. The king had the right to choose what to do with his captives and his spoils. And sometimes a generous, benevolent king, a good king, wouldn't keep all of that for himself. He would come home and share the wealth with who? His subjects. This happened in history. A lot of times they didn't do that, but sometimes they did. And so... The king would come home and share the wealth. And this is what Paul says that Jesus is doing. He's giving away the gifts that he has received from winning the battle. And so Jesus has now, according to Paul, ascended to heaven after winning a great battle. And he carries with him a host of captives, in a good sense, people that he has won back from the enemy. And he is giving gifts to men. He is sharing the spoils of war with his people. Okay? And so Paul borrows this idea to explain that the church is the evidence of Christ's victory. And that he is actively sharing his, both his inheritance and the gifts of the Holy Spirit with God's church. This is part of the reason... That our Christmas tradition involves the giving of gifts. It's not just because the wise men brought gifts to Jesus. It's actually because Jesus brings good gifts to us. That's what we're really celebrating. He is the good king who shares his best with us. And so I think this is a way for us as Christians to kind of redeem the practice of giving gifts at, at Christmas. To connect the dots a little bit for what we're doing and why we're doing it. Okay, Because the world sees it increasingly as an opportunity for consumption, for self-gratification, for getting all the stuff you want, right? But actually for the Christian, it is an opportunity to delight in our king. To give freely and joyfully as Christ has freely and joyfully given to us. You see? And so that's a way for us to think about it. Now, let's look quickly at the next two verses in Ephesians 4, verses 9 and 10. It says this. <clears throat> in saying he ascended... What does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Okay, so Paul says, if Jesus went up, 
he must also have gone down. And the one who went down has now gone so far up that he now fills all things. Now, I I know that's confusing. (laughs) It, It is to me even, okay? And so, again, a little bit of context helps. In ancient times, most people thought that their gods were limited in power and limited to the regions where people worshipped them. Okay? So the gods that people worshipped were local, local gods. So if I traveled to an area where no one worshipped my god, I needed to be careful because my god has no power there. Because there's nobody to worship him. And so Paul is disputing this idea by saying that Jesus has complete power and authority over the entire universe, not just your hometown, right? And so he has now ascended to a place where he fills or completes all things. He's not just another local deity. And this really helps to explain what Paul is saying. And this is a really big, really important idea. And so I want to try and help us understand how to apply it. There is a sense in which all of us feel as if our lives are incomplete. You ever feel that? You just feel like there's something missing. There's something not right. Something that should be there is not there. This is especially true, I think, around the holidays. And I mentioned this a little bit in my prayer. We're meant to enjoy this time of year. We're supposed to rest and and celebrate and be with the people that we love. And and that's, that's true. And I don't want to take away from that because I enjoy the holidays as much as anybody else. But for many of us, this time of year also highlights the things that we feel are missing. If you do have the sense that something is missing, you're going to feel it more acutely now, perhaps, than you do any other time of year. Grief hurts more as we miss lost loved ones. Right? Poverty hurts more if we don't have the money to spend on gifts that everyone else has. Depression hurts more when everyone around you seems happy and carefree and you're not. Right? And so if there's something about your life that doesn't feel complete... The holiday season can can make it feel worse, not better. And even if you don't feel that way right now, at some point in your life, we all feel this nagging reality that something is not right. The world is not the way it's supposed to be. And what's interesting is, you know, if you look at the retail industry, it really wants us to feel this way. I mean, everything is happy, 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 joy, 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 right? Most of these people don't even believe in Jesus. They're just like, celebrate, right? Because what do they want? 
they know that if they can put that in contrast, you see all the happy people, and that's not me, they're betting that you're more likely to buy things to try to fill the void of that incompleteness, and they're right. But according to the Bible, we feel incomplete because of a spiritual problem. According to the Bible, we were created to have a deep, meaningful, vital connection to God that has been severed. And everything that we do to try to fix that connection on our own will only frustrate us. Because only God can fix that connection. And Jesus is his solution. Now, here's the thing, and this is why this is why I'm going here with this with this passage, the whole fill all things thing. Our immediate response to that is to doubt it. Because we are just like the ancient people. We're just like them. We also are, have a tendency to worship created things instead of our creator. And our gods are also limited in power and confined to their local spaces. So we don't really tend to believe that God has the power to heal the places in our lives that hurt the most. Think about it like this. We tend to divide our lives into categories. There's the work category, school category, you know, family friends, other relationships, entertainment, hobbies, church. And we tend to think of these things as separate. But that's a problem. It's a problem because Jesus has no interest in being one of your many little categories. He is not content to be part of your life. Jesus has every intention of filling all things. All things. He completes everything. And what that means is that He brings order and purpose and value to every part of our lives. Every part. Everything else. Everything in the universe. Jesus owns it all. He claims it all. He fills it all. He completes it all. This is why Jesus ascended, according to Paul. So that we can't possibly think of Jesus as confined to one place. On earth. 
Because he's not one place on earth. If Jesus stayed in Galilee, it would be far more difficult for people from every nation, tribe, and tongue to know and follow Christ. Why? Because his disciples would have stayed preoccupied with his local presence. And he had bigger plans. You see that? Instead, what Jesus is now doing, according to Paul, is he is working to fill all things. He is working now to complete the incomplete. His reach has now extended far beyond ancient Galilee into the entire world as his witnesses, his disciples, continue to go to the ends of the earth. And so what is he doing? Genesis 1 tells us that God created order from chaos. That's how the creation story is told. He gave something that was formless and void. He gave it form. He filled the void. He made the sky and the sea and the land. And then he put stuff in the sky and the sea and the land. He gave them purpose. He gave them function. He made them just as they were. And it was very good. And this is how we're meant to think of what Jesus is doing right now by expanding his kingdom. Jesus is currently active in giving form and filling voids through the lives of his people. We are the new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. And so what that means, brothers and sisters, is that Jesus absolutely has the power to heal that part of your life that hurts the most. He is in it with you right now. If you are a brother or sister in Christ, a child of the living God, then Jesus has never once left you, not even for a moment. How many of you have heard the phrase, raise your hand if you've heard, when two or more are gathered in my name, I also am there. Raise your hand if you've heard that. Okay. Um, I love that verse. That verse comes from Matthew 18. And myself included, we have all used it out of context most of the time. Okay? In context, what Jesus is talking about is church discipline. Elders gathering to handle conflict. And he's saying, whenever a multiple group of elders gets together to decide on church discipline issues, I'm there with them. They carry my authority, basically, is what he's saying. Okay? Jesus is not saying that he only shows up, he's only present when we get together. It's not what he's saying. That's bad theology. Christ Jesus is in and with every believer all the time. All the time. Listen to Ephesians again. This is from chapter 3. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, 
so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. In the words of St. Patrick, Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right and Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ when I arise, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me. Christ in every eye that sees me. Christ in every ear that hears me. And so we exalt Jesus as king. Not over a small earthly kingdom on the other side of the world. But as king over all creation. Over the entire universe. And he will set captives free. In every corner of creation. And he will share his gifts with us. Amen. And he has shared us with us the gift of this table. Which is supposed to be a visible lasting picture of his presence with us. Of our union with Christ. He gave us the table as a means of grace. We celebrate it once a month together as a church as a way to remember that we are one in Christ, that we share the same faith, the same body, the same blood. We take it in faith. It is in and of itself a profession of faith every time you take the Lord's Supper. And so I want to remind you that if you've not publicly professed faith in Jesus, don't take the supper yet. Okay? Wait until you do. We would love for you to do that. I'd love to talk to you about that, what that means. Um, but we do come down and partake together as an extended family, as the body of Christ. And so in just a moment after I pray and give the words of institution, I'll invite you down in groups. We'll take the supper around the table and then pray. Um, we do not have wine today because your pastor forgot to get it and it's Sunday so you can't buy wine. So just grape juice today, um, so no worries there. And um, let's pray.